Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth. Destruction directed, 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 directed. Hello, everyone, and welcome once more to Earth Destruction Directive. As always, I am your host into this little soiree into the world of Japanese giant monsters, Luke Giaconetti, and I'm glad you could join me today. We are going to be looking at um, one of my personal favorites, actually, uh, from the Daikaiju Iga. Uh, which is Gamera vs. Baragon. And I um, hope everybody enjoyed last episode where we took a look at Godzilla Raids again, a.k.a. Gigantus the Fire Monster. Um, you know, kind of an interesting film, but, uh, you know, I think we did it uh, did it justice and gave it what it deserved, and um, glad to have covered it, and uh, glad to get some conversation about it out there. But today, like I said, we're going to be watching Gamera vs. Barrigan, and uh, we are, it's been a little while since we've done a Gamera movie, so this should be a lot of fun. Uh, we are going to get into it right after this quick break. About six months ago, an airplane carrying an atomic bomb crashed in the Arctic Ocean. The bomb exploded, and the great heat and force of the explosion released the monster Gamera, who had been imprisoned in the ice almost since the beginning of time. Gamera attacked Japan, leaving death and destruction in his wake. Man-made weapons were powerless against him. The Z-Plan was mankind's last hope. Gamera was lured into a rocket, which was sealed and shot to Mars. But the rocket crashed into a meteor. The capsule split open and Gamera returned to Earth, his devastating power even more terrible than before. Okay, welcome back to Earth Destruction Directive. Our movie this week is Gamera vs. Baragon, known in its native Japan as Daikaiju Keto, Gamera Tai Baragon, which translates to Giant Monster Duel, Gamera vs. Baragon. It was released over there in 1966, made its way here to the United States on television through AIP under the title War of the Monsters later on in 1966, and it was directed by Shigeyu Tanaka. In space, we see Gamera's Rocket Prison, which if you'll recall our coverage of Giant Monster Gamera, you'll remember that was how they got rid of him. They locked him in the nose cone of a rocket and shot him into space. Well, this rocket promptly collides with a meteor, and Gamera is freed. He returns to Earth, specifically Japan, then attacks and destroys Kurobe Dam in northern Japan, eating the flames and restoring his powers. Meanwhile, Three men, Kaisuke, Onodera, and Koajiri, they are they book passage on a merchant ship in order to visit a specific island in the South Pacific. They claim that they are going to retrieve the bones of one of their platoon mates who died during the war, but in fact they want to locate a giant opal which Kisuke's brother saw there during the war and hid in a cave. They land via helicopter and immediately are encountered by the villagers who don't speak Japanese. But they do come across a Japanese doctor who has left society and living on the island, and his, uh, his little assistant, Kara, who do speak Japanese. 
they warned them not to go to the jungle and that anyone who goes into the Valley of the Rainbow uh, never comes back alive. The men disregard them and head off into the jungle themselves. They soon uh, find the jungle is not very hospitable. First off, there's uh, quicksand, there's snakes, and there's also extremely deadly uh, scorpions that live in the cave where uh, Kisuke's brother hid the opal. They make their way to the cave and do, in fact, find the opal. Uh, but, as Kojiri jumps around with it, Onodera neglects to mention that there's a scorpion crawling up his leg and coldly waits until the scorpion stings him. Uh, Koajira dies within minutes, leaving uh, Onodera and Kensuke the only ones left. Onodera agrees to, uh, uh, excuse me, Onodera asks Kensuke to hold the opal. Kensuke agrees, but only when he will hold the gun. Yeah, see, they're really not trusting each other already. As Kensuke sees to Koajiri's, uh, you know, basically treating his body with some respect, Onodera goes higher up in the cave and sets off a couple of grenades, causing a rock slide. He then escapes back, claiming to be the only one who survived the excursion to the island. Kensuke, meanwhile, wakes up in the uh, village, being tended to by the doctor and Kara. Um, they tell him that if they took something from the valley, that great, terrible danger is going to face the earth, and all the villagers can do is pray that it doesn't hit them. Kara pleads to go to Japan to try and stop the menace, but the doctor won't let her. She continually pleads and finally says, well, he can take me, pointing to Kensuke. So they head back to Japan. Meanwhile, on the ship, Onodera is confined to sick day, sick bay, mostly because he's got a mild bout of malaria, wasn't sure such things could be mild, and he also has a fungal infection in his foot. While the malaria meds take effect, the doctor gives him an infrared light to shine on the fungal infection. Uh, the opal ends up being exposed to the infrared light, and, it and it it's not an opal, it's an egg, and it hatches, revealing the infantile monster Barrigan. The monster quickly glows full-sized, destroying the ship as it approaches Kobe Harbor. Barrigan is a quadrupedal lizard, with a long snout and long tail, a row of spikes running down his back, and a long horn coming from his nose. He destroys Kobe, including use using his long tongue like a battering ram like a frog would lash his tongue out, except this one is, you know, a bludgeoning weapon. He makes his way to Osaka, where not only does he demonstrate his own destructive powers uh, of his, you know, just from his sheer mass and strength, but his long tongue also can shoot a, f a strange cold mist weapon which freezes everything that it touches. His body is also so cold that merely walking past buildings is enough to coat them with frost. And strangely enough, after he's done freezing most of Osaka, he fires a rainbow beam from his back. And ain't no pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. All that's at the end of this rainbow is destruction, because anything it touches is immediately annihilated. Well, all of the destruction and fire in Osaka attracts Gamera, who is, of course, attracted to fire. And the two behemoths immediately lay into one another. The battle is back and forth, with both monsters suffering pretty nasty wounds, including at one point Gamera claws Barrigan right under his eye, leaving this huge gash with blood pouring out of it. Of course, it's, you know, purple blood, but blood nonetheless. The battle goes back and forth until Barrigan unleashes the cold mist and freezes Gamera solid. Meanwhile, Daisuke and Kara help the military devise a method to defeat Barrigan. First, they attempt to use the tribe's giant black diamond to lure Barrigan to a lake where he will drown, since water is Barrigan's main weakness. This proves ineffective when Barrigan shows no interest in the gem. A leap of logic is made, and a theory is put forth that since Barrigan was born from infrared radiation, 
How would they know that? The solution would be to similarly irradiate the diamond. Keeping the big lizard tranquilized with artificial lane, the military starts Operation Infrared Diamond Lure, which, amazingly enough, works. Unfortunately, that rat Onadera gets wind of the giant black diamond and sets out to steal it, right as Barrigan is about to enter deep water to his doom. Barrigan eats Onadera and the diamond with him and returns to land. One final plan is put into motion. After discovering that Barrigan's rainbow beam is reflected off of glass instead of destroying it, the army builds a giant mirror to reflect the beam back at the monster. They taunt and goad Barrigan into attacking, and begin seriously injuring him with his own reflected beam. But Barrigan's no dummy, and he stops firing the beam before they can kill him. The beam once more attracts Gamera, who's finally thawed out from the earlier battle, and the two clash once more. In the end, Gamera clamps down on Barrigan's neck with his powerful jaw and drags the lizard monster into the lake, killing him and ending the War of the Monsters. Now, this is a film that I saw a lot growing up in parts, and let me explain that. There used to be a show on USA, kind of really purposefully low-rent show called uh, Captain USA, and they used to show, you know, these types of monster movies and other types of, uh, you know, imports, chopsaki type movies, uh, I don't know, other, other types of crap that they could get cheap or free if they were in the public domain, and this was a film that I saw several times on Captain Video. Now, what I always remembered was two things. One, the film looks really kind of weird, because the print they would show would be the AIP TV version which is very muddy, it goes to red in a lot of places, the colors are not great, and also, after Gamera shows up at the beginning, we get a solid half hour without anything even approaching giant monsters happening in this movie, and as a kid I never liked that. But now, as an adult watching it, this is, without a doubt, my favorite of the Showa Gamera films, and I'll tell you why. It is the only one that is not a juvenile film, and there are no child characters in the film. Um, there's, it's, it's much more realistic in the way that it's shot and in the story. There's no fantastical elements, well, you know, other than the giant monsters. There's no aliens. Um, there's no space women. You know, there's no giant talking sharks. You know, uh, there's not someone threatening to toss a girl with the dolphins. We'll get to that at another time. But it's a much more in line with the types of movies that Toho made in the mid-60s, rather than what we would get later on in the Gamera series. And that, I, I always enjoyed that. It made the film really stand out to me, as opposed to some of the others, which are, you know, much more kid-based. And there's nothing wrong with a, a kid-based or a kid-aimed movie, but this one stands out as being much more mature. This was the only one of the Gamera films that Shigeo Tanaka would direct, um, uh, Yuji Nagusa directed all, including the first one and all the rest of the Showa ones. Uh, Tanaka had a much more, I think, serious uh, mindset with this and wasn't shooting for the you know, more juvenile aspects. And um, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, this style didn't really catch on for this series, and the remainder of the films were uh, much more in line with the first one. They had, you know, a kid pro pro uh, protagonist or two kid protagonists, and they're much more colorful and certainly a lot more fun. Uh, this film, the you know, the themes of greed and uh, backstabbing, it reminds me a lot of uh, Godzilla vs. Mothra from 1964 in that sense. You know, greed being the ultimate downfall was uh, a very... I don't want to say popular, but it certainly was fairly common 
theme in Japanese cinema of the 50s and 60s. I think you were getting into the period where the uh, the war had been over for a, more than a decade, and the economic boom was starting to really get enrolling here, and Japan was starting to join the world superpowers as an, as an economic power. And so, you know, some of these uh, more progressive ideas about the dangers of capitalism and the dangers of greed were very... I think they were forefront on people's minds. It's it's a common theme that you see a lot through films in the 60s, both genre films and non-genre films. Although, clearly, my familiarity is more with genre films. Uh, the first off, the the opening scene is uh, stock footage from the original Gamera, which is great because they don't even try to t- color tint it. They just leave it at black and white. Uh, and I love that. I always do. They, every time that Dai goes back and uses the stock footage, they just leave it in black and white. And that, to me, is either is either ballsy or cheap. I'm leaning more towards ballsy, frankly, because I love it. But the first new scene is the destruction of Kurobe Dam by Gamera, and this this is one of the best, if not possibly the best, single scene of special effects work in the Showa Gamera series. I mean, the the miniatures look great, there's some really good um, opticals, not opticals, really good um, rear projection where we get Gamera in one part of the screen destroying the dam and in the front we get a, uh, a little set piece where we can see the, the, you know, the workmen and stuff reacting and running around. It's a really well composited um, shot and the uh, the destruction itself is you know it's you know, he's just kind of stomping around in it, but it looks really well. The, the suit looks really good in color. The miniatures are really well done. Um, there's a great scene when, after Gamera um, destroys the majority of the, uh, the support buildings, he pulls in his arms, legs, and head and starts to do his UFO routine, where it's, it's almost like a crane shot. In fact, it must be a crane shot, because we're looking down. We're got to be in scale about a couple hundred feet up in the air looking down over the dam at Gamera as he's starting to take off and you can see the whole set and it's just a static shot but it looks really nice and it really sells the scale I think very well and then of course the actual destruction of the dam where Gamera slams into it a couple of times in UFO form and then it cracks and then floods out is really well done I like that he doesn't destroy it on the first crack Um, you know especially in, in Godzilla films, no building ever stood up to anything, you know. But in this one, the way that he's spinning, and a dam is a very solid piece of, uh, you know, architecture. It's not something that's going to necessarily give way, but he smacks it and smacks it again with his shell, and then finally you see a cr- it's crack and then crumble. And then the flood itself is very well realized. My friend Duncan, every time we'd watch a Daikaiju movie, he'd always say, water doesn't scale! That was his, uh, that was like his, his, um, refrain that he would always go to. But the water looks really good here because it's a very massive flood behind this dam. So that's easier to scale than, you know, a monster wading up onto the shore. Um, when they la- land on the island, it's a bit odd because the native girls are wearing red plastic grass skirts. Now, I'm not an expert on, on South Pacific culture. I never claim to be, but I'm pretty sure that that red pa- plastic grass skirt that you can get from Party City, pretty sure that kind of reed doesn't exist in the real world. Just throwing it out there. Uh, it's, it's very funny <laughs> just watching. It's first thing you like, like, oh, did they die? It's like, no, that looks plastic. That really looks plastic. And in fact, on the new DVD that um, Rhino put out, which is uh, the straight uh, Japanese version and it's widescreen, it really looks like the plastic grass skirt because that's exactly what it is. You'd think they'd at least get the green ones, you know, but no such luck. 
Uh, actually, uh, Kitsuke has a very interesting line when they land on the island. Um, the natives all come out. Onodera pulls the pistol out, and Kitsuke, you know, uh, basically slaps his hand down and says, you can't pull a pistol out every time you get a little scared. He goes, these natives helped us during the war. They won't hurt us now. I thought that was interesting, because this is, this is 20 years after World War II. And, uh, you know, we don't think about, in America, I don't think we think about, you know, the the other, you know, the non, uh, I don't want to say this, you know, some of the things like that, that there were instances of natives helping the Japanese in uh, on some of these small islands in the Pacific during the, the latter half of the war. But, you know, it's, it's just not something that ever comes up, I think, in American uh, versions or American stories about the war, just because it really wasn't as much a factor for us as it was for the, for the Japanese. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the war in this, which, again, is... It, it adds to that less juvenile, more mature sort of uh, mindset, and I, I like it. I, I don't mind the references to it. You know, it's it, by this point, Toho had probably dropped any type of reference to the war. They never had any real stories that dealt with it other than they would talk more about bomb testing after the war than they ever did talk, talk about the war itself. Uh, when they get to the cave, we get a very, very funny bat on a string. Uh, straight out of a 1940s Universal movie. Uh, I don't know why bats can never be done well in special effects. It just simply can't be done unless it's uh, uh, animated by um, you know Walter Lance, like in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. That's about it. Interesting thing about the cave in the Japanese version, it's referred to the Valley of the Rainbow, which you know sounds only moderately menacing. In the AIP dub, War of the Monsters, it's called the Hill of Death. And uh, there's a great line where Koji goes, the hill of what? And it's like, the hill of death. It's like, you know, you could call it the valley of duckies and bunnies. It doesn't matter. You don't want to go to this place. It's pretty bad news to begin with. Uh, but I, I like the, the valley of the rainbow just because it foreshadows Berrigan's um, rainbow beam. And uh, But I can see why they change it. It doesn't exactly sound uh, like very uh, very foreboding sort of name. Uh, inside the cave, Onodera wears his sunglasses the entire time. That's how you know he's evil. Uh, people who wear sunglasses a lot in uh, Daikaiju movies tend to be evil also if they have facial hair, which Onodera does during these scenes on the island. So, uh, Bad guy, don't mess with them. Sunglasses, facial hair. Uh, <laughs> um, one of my favorite lines from this is when the uh, when Berrigan destroys the ship at Kobe Harbor, um, you know, all the police are helping rescue all the survivors from the ship, and Onodera is standing on the dock, and one of the young sailors who he had been sailing with, uh, who earlier, in fact, right before Berrigan destroyed the ship, had brought a, um, he had brought a, what do you call it? Oh, he brought some flowers to put um, in the, you know, as, a, as an honor for the, uh, the bones of Onodera's uh, dead friend. And, you know, he, he had said that his father died on a Pacific island in the war and that, you know, he wanted to honor his, you know, Mr. Onodera's friend. Well, he comes up to him on the dock when they're standing there with the police and he says, you know, I saved your friend's bones, Mr. Onodera. I know they were very precious to you. And Onodera just gives him this look because he's lost the opal at this point. And he gives him this look and he, go, and he goes, pig's bones, that's all they are and the disgust in his voice. In in the Japanese, he actually says they're just their pig's bones, you fool, which is, I think, is, is you know, but either one works, but even the American dub is just really well done. It's a good line, and then the poor guy's just standing there looking at the box, just is, you know, just shocked, absolutely shocked. Um, especially considering the, the reverence for uh, the bones of the dead. 
in Japanese culture. And this, uh, this comes up actually much, much, much later in the Millennium Godzilla series, the idea of the, you know, the bones and the, the human, the, not the human, the remains of Godzilla, the original Godzilla. This comes up in the two um, Millennium Mechagodzilla films. So it's, it's interesting to see it here because it's not something, again, that's touched on a lot. These are, these are serious themes that usually were kind of left to the wayside for most of these films. Uh, same scene. How did Berrigan get to shore? I've n always wondered about this. Water is his main weakness. He can't swim. Gamora kills him by dragging him under the water and drowning him. How does he make it from the middle of Kobe Harbor, where Onodera tells us the water is more than 100 feet down, to getting on shore? I've, n I've never understood that. I'm willing to accept that he grew giant really fast because of the infrared radiation, doesn't really make sense, but I'm willing to take it. I don't know how he gets to shore. I've always wondered about that. And it's not in the Japanese version either. So it's like, well, how did he do that? I guess my what I've always kind of no-prized it, you know, waving my hands out to make it, uh, make it work, is that he lands in the water and he's so freaked out because he hates water, he just, you know, beats a path to, to shore. <laughs> uh, the scenes of Barragon in uh, Kobe and Osaka I think are, are really well done. There, there's a couple more static overhead shots like I was discussing with the dam where we just see Barragon going to town destroying tanks and uh, buildings. The freeze ray is really nice because it's a nice counterpart to Gamera's um, heat breath. You know, he, Gamera just shoots fire out of his mouth. He doesn't even shoot a beam like Godzilla. And you know, Barrigan just shoots a uh, mist that freezes everything. When he's under attack by the tanks, you know, he just, uh, the mist rolls over them and then they're, they're just frozen. And I like the sound design because we get, a, you know, a lot of uh, rockets firing and missiles firing and explosions. And then as soon as the mist rolls over them, it's dead quiet. Uh, this this has uh, reminded me kind of of we saw this in God's, uh, Return of Godzilla, Godzilla 1985, when Goji destroys the line of tanks and then it's just eerily quiet. But of course, this was 20 years before that. Uh, the when he breaks out the rainbow, it's just so strange, and uh, I'm always I'm always reminded of the line from the Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode of this, where it's like, "Taste the rainbow of death," you know. <laughs> It's just, it's so unusual because Barrigan is such a plain-looking monster. I mean, he's just a big lizard. He doesn't have anything too crazy. He's got a horn on his nose. Okay, iguanas have sometimes have horns on their nose. He's got some spikes on his back. Other than that, he's just a big-looking lizard. But then he's got this big, long, battering ram tongue that shoots freezing mist, and then a giant rainbow beam that comes out of his back. I mean, that is, to me, almost the definition of a Gamera monster. It's something that's just so strange when you get down to it, that's like, that is, now that's a monster, you know. Uh, there's a great line in, in Gamma vs. Gauss where they're arguing over what type of creature Gauss is, and one guy just says, let's just call it a monster. And that's the same type of thing here with, with Barrigan. Um, we get, actually, one of my favorite uh, little bits of a, uh, a military vehicle being destroyed in Daikaiju film happens in this movie. When in Osaka, a squadron of fighter jets scrambles to attack Barrigan, and he uses the cold mist on him. Well, we see the effects as he freezes a jet, and this frozen jet is just flying through the air, and then just, it falls apart. The no, the uh, tail comes off, and then one of the wings, and then a fuselage breaks in half, and it's like, wow, that, that's pretty, that's pretty badass right there, you know? You don't think about it, but extreme cold like that, the, the, and then the, adding to that the sheer effect, 
and that would rip it apart. Always reminded me of when, um, in the original Rodan, when Rodan just uh, clips one of the jets with his wingtip and it slices through the fuselage, you know. We don't think about the fact that jets are under so much uh, stresses when they're flying that little things like that can be disastrous. Oh, that's really neat. The fight between uh, Barragun and uh, Gamera is interesting because for the majority of it, Gamera is on four legs. So we get two quadrupeds fighting, which is very, very rare in Daikaiju cinema. It's much easier to film somebody walking rather than crawling in a suit. And I will give uh, Dai's uh, special effects guys credit. They do design Barragun's legs in such a way that his rear legs don't look like he's walking on his knees. He actually does look like he's walking kind of like a lizard on all fours, so that was pretty neat. The fight is, is pretty nasty. I mean, they would use a lot of gore in some of the later Gamera films, but this is probably the most... Um, this film has the best fights, I think, as far as just sheer daikaiju combat. Uh, when Gamera sinks his claws underneath Barrigan's eye, it's like, Youch! You know, that just looks painful, even if I'm not a giant lizard. And then the freezing of Gamera is... Um, it's just too funny, you know, he's a big old frozen turtle. And then, uh, you know, Barragan flips him over on his back. That was almost that insult to injury before he leaves. The various ways they try to get rid of Barragan are all very creative, and we'd see this a couple of times later in the Gamera series, where it's not just, let's throw wave after wave of man at him. You'll recall they did something similar in Giant Monster Gamera. They'd used, uh, they flipped him over and stunned him, and then we're going to try and blow him up. And, you know, so they, they actually were using their heads and not just you know, using the Zap Brannigan approach to giant monster fighting. Of course, none of them really work. Uh, it's it's funny that they keep trying, though. And, and what's funny also is Onodera. He's just so damn greedy. Can't pass it up because he hears they've got this giant black diamond. And personally, I don't mess with black diamonds. I don't want to turn into some uh, purple and gold wearing bad guy every time there's an eclipse. That's just me. But Onodera obviously has no such concerns. And he's, you know, trying to get the black diamond. And Berrigan eats him. It's so funny. It's so funny because it's like, you know, it's like, man, you got yours. You know, in... in Godzilla versus Mothra, the two businessmen fighting over the money end up getting crushed uh, when Godzilla destroys their building. That is a certain level of irony. This is a whole other level of irony because anytime you can add the awesomeness of somebody getting eaten by a giant monster, you know, right off a boat, just chomp, you know, it's like, oh, that's so funny. I don't know. Every time in a Daikaiju movie that somebody gets eaten, it's never horrific. It's always funny to me. When we get to War of the Gargantuas, this this just goes out of hand. It's so funny. I don't know why that cracks me up. I guess because there's... It's not like they're dinosaurs, and theoretically a dinosaur eating you is kind of... You know, that's scary. I mean, we saw that in Jurassic Park. That's kind of horrific. A giant monster stopping to eat you? I don't know. When it's not bad enough that they just stomped through your city and leveled it to the ground, and they got to pick somebody up and eat them? I mean, that's, that's a bit, you know, a little drastic, I think. But anyway... Um, and then the, the, the big mirror, Operation Reflect, I think they call it. Again, we'd, we wouldn't see this particular thing again, but as far as reflecting a beam back on the monster, we saw this in Godzilla vs. Biolanti, previously covered on this show. The fire mirror that's built into the Super X2, not much different than what they're doing here. Except, of course, uh, in that case, Godzilla's beam is so powerful it melts the Super X2, whereas here, uh, Berrigan simply figures it out and stops doing it. Which, you know, it's like, okay, that hurts. I'm going to stop doing it now. So who says all monsters are stupid? 
And of course, the final confrontation where uh, Gamera drags Berrigan down. I always like the end of this because it looks almost like the shot they'd use at the end of Jaws with the uh, with the shark sinking down to the water, where we see the underwater shot of, of Berrigan being dragged down to his death by Gamera. Very dramatic. Gamera always killed his foes, so this was not, uh, you know... How do I put this? It wouldn't be out of place in the rest of the series, but it's a little more dramatic than some of the silly, sillier fights. I mean, you know, in Gamma vs. Zegra, he plays Zegra's spines like a xylophone to play the Gamma song, of all things. Another thing, the Gamma song's not in this movie. So that alone should tell you the level of uh, seriousness. Overall, I really enjoy this film. Like I said, it's it's different than the other Gamera films. And I like Berrigan. I like Berrigan as a monster. I'm always a sucker for these, uh, you know, plain Jane looking monsters. I don't, I don't know why. I mean, I like crazy looking monsters too, but sometimes you get a plain Jane looking monster that can hold his own. You know, we had we talked about this with Anguirus. You know, Anguirus doesn't even have any of the powers that Berrigan has, and Anguirus is a cool... We always like him. He's an underdog. Well, Berrigan's not so much an underdog, but he's certainly a plain-looking monster, but he happens to have a good personality and some really cool powers, you know. Seeing Gamera not as a hero, but just as the one that wants to fight Berrigan, that I thought was pretty neat, too, because a lot of times this one always... Oh, this was the one where Gamera turned good guys. Like, eh, not really. I would not say that. I would say, in fact, that Godzilla's face turn in Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster is much, much more of a solid face turn than Gamera's outing here. Now, by the next film, Gamera is the friend of children everywhere, and that's his role, and he's awesome at it. In this film, the first thing he does when he comes back to Earth is destroy Kurobe Dam. And then he only shows up to fight Berrigan because of all the heat energy, and he thinks that, you know, that'll make him stronger. So, I like that Gamera is just another monster here. I, would I like to have seen more interaction between the monsters and the two fights? Of course. But what we get is, we really get a war of the monsters. You know, these two monsters just really just go to town on each other. Berrigan wins the first skirmish, Gamera ultimately wins the war, and, you know, between that, we get, you know, kind of a, a giant, a straight-up solo giant monster movie with the army trying to destroy Berrigan. I mean, I think that's pretty neat. Uh, I like the story with uh, Kasuke and Onidera and going to the island. It, it has sort of a uh, you know real adventurous sort of theme to it. Uh, the effects, I think, are, are very good. I mean, Dai never really did their effects as good as Toho. I mean, that's kind of just a given. But they did a really good job here, I think. The suits and the miniatures look good. I mean, the jets are a little, you know, they're a little chintzy. That comes with the territory. You know, flying things are hard. Flying things are hard to do because they, they, you know, wires are visible or they wobble. You know, remote control tanks, that's a little bit easier. They're driving on the ground. There's only so many degrees of freedom that you have. And giant monsters are giant monsters. So uh, I enjoyed this one. I think you should definitely check it out. Now, if you want to check it out, as I said last time, this film in uh, AIP's War of the Monsters form is available for free. Go to archive.org, search for War of the Monsters. You can watch it right there in your browser, or you can download it. And that is actually my preferred uh, version of the film. And you're going to say, Luke, how can you say that? Well, the reason is is that War of the Monsters takes out about mm, 12 to 13 minutes of footage from the original Japanese. And normally that would be, a, man, that's a big cut. But I have the original Japanese. I, I have it on a VHS taken from the Japanese Laserdisc. And then later, as I said, Rhino released Zilver uh, vs. Barragon on uh, DVD with Japanese and English subtitles from no English track. So I've, I've, I own it in that form. And the stuff they cut out is a lot of talking and a lot of filler. 
And I don't mean to sound, you know, condescending, but it's like we don't really need that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the second half where it's, you know, the army getting ready to do stuff or moving Earth or people, you know, are uh, Kasuke and, and Kara talking about what the army's going to do. And so I was like, it, it kind of drags it, especially in Japanese where you're reading all this. It kind of drags for a little while. And, you know, when we want to get back to the monsters. In War of the Monsters... You know the 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 front is all the same. I mean, there's a couple of seconds here and there where they cut. You can you can tell because it jumps a little bit, but primarily the whole the whole first half hour is the same, and then the second half hour is pretty much the same, and then they tighten up the final half hour because the movie's 88 minutes long in War of the Monsters form, and so it's a lot tighter. There's not as much time between the first fight between Gamera and Barragon and the second. So it actually plays faster and I like it. Now I like the Japanese version a lot too, don't get me wrong. That one is good, but like I said it tends to bog down a little bit in the second half. So AIP actually did this movie something of a favor. Uh, the colors are absolutely atrocious on the AIP version, I will say that. I mean, this movie, watching it on DVD is just a revelation, just so you can see what is going on in certain scenes. Uh, but other than that, I, I, I think you can't, you know, you can do real well with the AIP version. The AIP version of this is better than the American version of Gamera the Invincible. I will say, though, if you'll recall, when we talked about Giant Monster Gamera slash Gamera the Invincible, I said that the American distributors added the second M to Gamera's name, G-A-M-M-E-R-A, because they were concerned that people in the United States would look at that and try to say Gamera, Okay seems reasonable, and apparently 100% justified, because in the AIP version, Gamera is called Gamera in the narration. Now, <laughs> Gamera loves flames, but the, uh, it's, you know, I'm willing to work with that, it's okay. I mean, we know it's Gamera. You know it's Gamera, that's all that matters, right? Uh, as I said, you can get it uh, for free on archive.org. Also, if you want to go to uh, Alpha Video, oldies.com, they've got a really nice uh, only about $5, frankly, uh, DVD of War of the Monsters with a really nice new piece of cover art. In fact, I think they have pretty much all of the Gamera films, except they don't have Gamera vs. Jiger, I don't think, but don't quote me on that. I've I've got a few of their stuff, and, and they're, you know, they're they're just the public domain versions, but they're, um, you know, they're, they're well put together, they got nice art, and, and they're cheap, they're five bucks, you know, so you can't go wrong with that. Now, the in the 80s, Sandy Frank... He's the source of all our pain. I got a hold of these films, and the uh, five Gamera films, and redubbed them and released them on video. Now, this is the version that you saw if you watched this movie on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Other than that version, which is available in the Gamera box set from MST3K, I do not recommend the Sandy Frank dubs. The Sandy Frank dub is very... Uh, the voices are bad. The, dial the, the rewritten dialogue is bad. The acting is bad. I just say avoid it, you know? Not going to get into it. I don't want to be super negative on this show. I say, if you're going to get this movie, get either the Japanese one or, you know, go get uh, War of the Monsters. Avoid the Sandy Frank dub, which is pretty much out of print. You'd have to get it on VHS. I don't think it was ever really released on DVD except for the Misty version. And I don't have my Misty DVDs in front of me, but I'm almost certain that there is no unriffed version on those DVDs. So even if you did get the Misty one, you'd get the Misty episode and not the unriffed film. Um, but I, like I said, I don't think you can go wrong with the AIP. And if you, my, I mean, really, if you want to get down to the brass tacks of it, watch the AIP one. If you like it, you can either buy the AIP one from Alpha Video or 
you can use the two true you can use the amazon.com link on uh, two true and go buy it off of Amazon it's like it's like 595 on Amazon but if you get enough you get free shipping uh, or use that same link and go buy the Japanese version Gamera versus Barragon uh, I said it's, it's a, a different type of Gamera movie a lot of fun to watch it's real enjoyable much more in line with the type of films that we were getting from Toho I would have liked to have seen the series continue like this. It would have been interesting to see some of the other monsters, like Gauss or Virus, or Jiger for that matter, in a more serious setting rather than the more fantastical settings that we saw them in. But I like those movies too, so it's win-win as far as I'm concerned. Alright folks, I am going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will get to more of Earth Destruction Directive. Mr. Here they are, Mr. Onodera. Look. Oh? I saved them for you. I know they're precious to you. What's precious? The bones of your friend. Are you kidding? Pig bones, that's all they are. Hmm? And Guy Gardner is a douche. Uh, especially Guy Gardner, who was being a bit of a douchebag, but uh, he wasn't really listening. That's Guy's like thing. Yeah, but that that's his other superpower. <laughs> Speaking of Guy Gardner, page 19, I resent the brain damage comment. He was just a character I found extremely grating. Wow, the internet seems to be filled with people who really can't stand the character of Guy Gardner. I mean, to some extent they have a point. I mean, they'd read the character like I have, his adventures with the cores, his solo comic run, whatever. Maybe they'd have a little more appreciation for him. I mean... There needs to be more guy love on the internet. Uh, maybe not that kind of guy love. Regardless, there still has to be a way that a middle-aged man like myself with a love of comic books should be able to present a defense for an underrated character. If he built it, they will come. What was that? If he built it, they will come. Okay, strange disembodied voice, that's a great idea, but I really don't see how building a baseball field in a little bit cornfield will help with matters. I mean, I think there aren't any cornfields near here, especially ones that are the owner let me build a baseball field in. Plus, Guy was more of a football player and... No, no, no. <sighs> Look, no speaking metaphorically. What I meant by Bill is... Oh, maybe make a podcast about it? Well, that's an even better idea, and it's a lot easier, given my farming and athletic abilities. I could recount all the appearances of Guy in comics, I could focus on his solo run, I could give detailed plans of his bar, and... Hold on, hold on, hold on, champ, champ. You really want people to actually listen to the podcast, don't you? Well, yeah. So why not start with the 1990s Green Lantern and continue on to the Reaper? Well, that's an even better idea. I could cover the Guy Gardner solo series along the way, and also put up for a defense my second favorite GL, Kyle Rayner. Plus, really, these are the two Earth-based Green Lanterns. For whatever reason, they're really overlooked in the mass media. Plus, I've got a nearly complete runs of both series. Wow! Thanks, strange disembodied voice. No problem. Now, now, now. let's go kill President Nixon. Um, you do know that Nixon has been dead for well over a decade. Oh, uh, oh, okay, okay. Well, how about some brownies? Mmm, that sounds great. I love some good brownies, especially the one with the chocolate frosting on top. Or have you ever had blondies? Those are even better. 
I had one of those at church. Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, is a weekly internet radio show covering the Green Lantern comics, starting with Green Lantern number 1 in 1990 and ending with Green Lantern number 181 in 2004. During the run, I will be placing a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite and the most underappreciated members of the Green Lantern Corps. Along the way, I'll be covering the Guy Gardner comic run, some Green Lantern annuals, and whatever else takes my interest at the time. Come and listen along with me, Sean Ingold, as I make the case for the Green Lanterns who deserve a better reputation at justoneoftheguys.lipson.com. And welcome back to Earth Destruction Directive. Uh, no listener feedback this week, not in the form of emails or uh, comments on the blog. I would urge everyone out there, if you have something you want to say, Turret Destruction Directive, want to hear your name on the podcast, please send in an email or uh, leave a comment on the blog. However, I do want to recognize a certain poster on the Two True Freaks message boards who is almost single-handedly helping me keep the Earth Destruction Directive thread alive, and that is Lomax. Now, I've never uh, talked with Lomax on a show. I've only ever interacted with him on the board, but he seems like a pretty cool guy. Uh, his other big... Th- he's always good at starting uh, threads that I seem interested in. The other thread he started the other day was the... He called it the Chop Suckery thread, and I'm like, oh man, I do like me some kung fu movies too. But he has been a, a loyal poster on the... Uh, the Earth Destruction Directive official thread. He's been posting a lot of tokusatsu stuff. He posted the clip from the end of Ultraman vs. Kamen Rider with the two heroes. Uh, I put the trailer up for... This is uh, Gokaiger vs. Gavin. Um, the Pirate pirate Sentai Gokaiger vs. Space Sheriff Gavin movie. Which I haven't had a chance to watch yet. I need to download that. We were just going back and forth. And then he put up these... Um, this orchestral version of the Ultra 7 song with Ultra 7 there helping run the, uh, you know, run the show. It's like, yeah, 7, you're the boss. So, hey, thank you very much, Lomax. I appreciate everything you do on the board. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate all of the videos you put up. You all, every time I know Lomax makes a post, it's usually going to be something good. So, uh, this is just my uh, very public way of saying thanks, and I appreciate it. Uh, so, what are we going to be taking a look at next time in Earth Destruction Directive? Well, it has been even longer uh, that we have done a Millennium film. So, we are going to be taking a look at a uh, Millennium series film from the Godzilla series. Now, the last Millennium film we did, in fact, the only Millennium film we've done, is Godzilla X Megajirus. So, what we are going to do in my effort to get back on track and not be jumping around so much, uh, we are going to go back one film previous to the first of the Millennium films, Godzilla 2000, also known in Japan as Godzilla Millennium, appropriately enough. Uh, This is the last Godzilla film that was actually released in theaters, first run in the States. Uh, The original Gojira has played some theatrical engagements after that, but this was released, you know, in regular theaters that you go down to the Cineplex and see, and remains to this day the only Godzilla film I have seen on the big screen. And I have got a story about that. But that will be next time. So until then, I want to say thank you to everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. And keep them stomping. This has 
Self-Destruction Directed, a Daikaiju podcast, hosted and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, and presented by the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. All characters, stories, images, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a fan work designed to honor the rich history of Japanese giant monster movies and culture. The opinions expressed on Earth Destruction Directive are my own, and I receive no money for this work. You can send feedback to our email address, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. All feedback is welcome, and if you send it an email, I will respond to you on the show. Alternately, you can leave a comment at the home of Earth Destruction Directive on the Internet, earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. You can also check out the Two True Freaks Forum at www.forum4geek.com, and you can find me on Twitter with the handle LJACONE, that's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And be sure to head to twotruefreaks.libsyn.com to check out all the other fine quality Two True Freaks podcasts available. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.